Hello, Georgia. Hello, Metro Augusta. And hello, wherever you are. This is Janice Allen Jackson. And we are here for the June 7th edition of Local Matters, a show designed to make you a more confident voter and a more engaged citizen. Today's show is brought to you as a service of my consulting firm, and that is Janice Allen Jackson and Associates, where we proudly provide services to local government and nonprofit organizations. If you haven't already, please follow Local Matters on Facebook. And of course, we ask you to subscribe to our YouTube channel. We drop new audio every Wednesday afternoon. Uh, so you'll get notifications and see us on Facebook when those new episodes drop. And every now and then as the mood strikes, we put something on YouTube. So you'd be well served to get those notifications as well. Today, I am joined by attorney Matthew Silver, and he will discuss the topic that generates more local government calls and complaints than just about anything else. But before we get there, I want to remind you to go back and listen to last week's episode in case you missed it. My guest was attorney Tanya Jeffords of Augusta, and she discussed the all-important topic of how African-Americans interact with law enforcement. And uh, we entitled that episode, Does the Constitution Protect Everyone? It was a really good discussion, and you can find that on Spotify, SoundCloud, or Apple Podcasts. Or, of course, you could just go to my website or my Facebook page, and that is the Local Matters Facebook page. Uh, go there, listen to the episode, and hear what an experienced civil rights trial attorney and criminal attorney uh, has to say about uh, that topic of the Constitution protecting everyone. You all, thanks so much for being a part of the Local Matters family. Local Matters family, we have a treat today. And when I say a treat, that's somebody that's all the way from California uh, that wanted to join the Local Matters family. His name is Matt Silver. How are you doing today, Matt? I'm doing great, Janice. Thank you so much for having me. Yes, thank you for asking for this opportunity to come on to the show. Uh, I was excited about your request because you want to address a topic that every city has to deal with in some shape, form, or fashion, and that is the business of code enforcement. Uh, if you could just kind of get started and talk to our audience a little bit about um, what you do, and then we'll go from there to ask some questions that I know our listeners want to hear more about. Absolutely. Um, so I, I'm an attorney who focuses on code enforcement. Uh, I'm located in Southern California, along with my team. There's about a dozen of us. Uh, we're with a firm called Civica Law Group. Civica is Latin for civic because our focus is on public service in the local context. So we represent cities and counties around the state of California that don't have attorneys in-house that specialize in code enforcement, housing, and community improvement issues. So that's what we do. Uh, I do have the fortune of being able to travel around the country doing trainings 
on code enforcement related issues. There's just not a lot of trainers out there on the law as it applies to code enforcement and empowering them to deal with this, these situations. And then finally, I serve as a volunteer for CASIO, which is the California Association of Code Enforcement Officers and serve as their vice president in charge of legislation. So kind of we live and breathe all things related to community improvement, quality of life and code enforcement. Okay, great. And if you could start with the basics, well, a couple of things. One, how long have you been doing that? I'm going to my 17th year. Okay, all right. And in 17 years, you've come up with a real good definition of what code enforcement is, I bet you. I have. In fact, I think the short and sweet, Janice, is that code enforcement is the Swiss Army tool of every city. They deal with all the quality of life issues that are really varied and diverse, and those ones affect the community. Code enforcement officers are non-sworn, typically non-sworn, meaning they're non-police officers. In some states, they are. But here in California, for example, like a lot of places, they're civilians and they're charged with enforcing the municipal code. So they generally don't enforce state laws. There are certain state laws like housing and other quality of life issues they can't enforce. But by and large across the country, there's a theme and that is code enforcement enforces the local codes that are in the municipal codes. Okay. And those codes relate to things like tall grass, for instance, that they do the tall grass uh, quality of housing is really a big one these days uh, in California cannabis so marijuana uh, growth cultivation distribution is a big one they enforce homeless issues are a huge one they enforce um, everything from sidewalk vending to signage issues to property maintenance to really nitty gritty uh, issues that used to be crime focused by police code enforcement deal with in a civil way. And that can include Janice, things like gang houses, drug houses, uh, human trafficking and prostitution. So really, really wide range of uh, quality of life issues code enforcement deals with. Thank you. because And thank you for that expanded definition, because I know a lot of times people just think about it as tall grass and uh, junk vehicles and a dilapidated structure. So totally. thanks for, for letting me know that, that it's a little bit broader than that. Um, at the end of the day, uh, what is, when the rubber hits the road, uh, what do you think is the biggest challenge facing a code enforcement official in your average municipal government? I think oftentimes it's lack of training to know what they can do and how to do it. Code enforcement folks uh, sometimes don't know the real scope of the tools that they have at their disposal to deal with that wide uh, variety of issues I just mentioned. So I think the training uh, code enforcement has really been kind of the wild west for a long time, Janice. And so it's only, I think, in the last maybe 10 years, at least that I've seen in my career, that there's been a more focused effort to get code enforcement the funding it needs, like other departments, so that it can get the training to learn uh, what they can do and how to do their job. I know a lot of frustrations I hear from code enforcement folks around the country are that they don't have the resources, they don't have the training, sometimes don't feel they have the support, but yet they're being held accountable to improve these communities by elected officials, including by neighbors who are calling, complaining about these issues, and they need help. Code wants to help, 
but they need the resources to do it. Right. And that's interesting that you say that, do they have the support? That That's one of the key things. I think in my career as a, a city manager and now my consultant practice, um, code enforcement is probably one of the things that city managers get the most complaints about. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, you know, you see people who are living in dilapidated structures. A lot of times the tenants are hesitant to report issues because they don't know if their landlord is going to kick them out. And if the if the city decides, code enforcement decides the place is not suitable to live in, then they don't have any alternatives in terms of where to go. Right. So code enforcement winds up in a tough position. They say, yeah, we can go in and, and try to, um, you know, tell the landlord that they've got to fix it up. But sometimes there's so the structure is so bad that the tenant will have to move out. And if they moved out, where would they go? Right. There's a housing crisis uh, and that exists all over the place. And so that's a real balance code enforcement officers have to strike. At the end of the day, though, uh, living in substandard housing and accepting that is not an acceptable solution or alternative to uh, the housing crisis. You know, people die, unfortunately, on a frequent basis in our country by dangers in substandard housing. You probably heard of the ghost ship fire in Oakland. Uh, a couple of years ago, 36 people died living in a warehouse. And it was known that people were living in this warehouse, but the feeling was, where else are they going to go? So I would propose that the alternative to that is one, that we make sure these properties are up to code, so they're habitable, and that then provides more housing. We maximize the existing housing for people. And then secondly, for people who are currently living in that, you know, states should take a look at uh, what California does out here in our state housing laws. California requires in substandard housing situations for the slumlord, which is really what it often is we're dealing with in that circumstance, Janice, to provide relocation benefits for that tenant, meaning uh, pay for them to be able to live somewhere while that property is fixed up. Then they get the right of first return. Uh, once it is fixed up. And then also more and more money is coming down from the federal and state levels to cities to help them provide vouchers for people to live. Because the goal of code enforcement is compliance. It's simply compliance. It's not changing ownership. It's not certainly not creating homelessness by any means. It's compliance and protecting lives. And that's, we need to do everything we can to achieve that goal. Yeah, and that, that's interesting you say that because California law, I did not know that California law actually requires those landlords to take responsibility for where the tenant goes when the house is being repaired. Do you find that true in many states? Have you studied that to see? You know, I've only touched on that a little bit. Um, I do find that more states are picking up on that as they're realizing that substandard housing really is a cause of ills uh, far bigger than just what's obvious. I mean, it's been linked to things like child development issues, crime increases. And of course, it has this negative uh, spiral effect of decreasing property values, which drives down general fund revenues and reduces the ability of cities to provide services. So I do think it's a trend that's on the increase. At least I hope it is. Okay. Yeah, because that would, I think, be a huge uh, win for uh, tenants who, are, who feel like they're stuck in properties. Yes. Uh, and yes. feel like it's not worth it for them to try to complain. It's like, I can stay in the substandard housing or I can complain about it and get kicked out and be homeless. I mean, sometimes it just aren't really good choices for the, those, those tenants in those situations. 
It, you know, on that point, Janice, it's also important that uh, cities and states look to anti-retaliation laws. Again, example here in California, once the city uh, begins a code enforcement action, at least under our state housing laws, the law prevents the landlord from retaliating against the tenant. Now, there are, of course, circumstances where the tenants are the cause of the problems. Maybe they're, you know, tearing up the unit or something like that. But in those circumstances, it's not retaliation. There's an actual, you know, legal process to follow to evict uh, an illegally operating or occupying tenant. But in the situations we're talking about here today, Janice, we're talking about substandard property issues and people should not be penalized and cannot under California law be penalized for simply reporting these, you know, substandard non-co-compliant conditions. Okay, that's, that, that sounds really good. Sounds really good in California. Uh, one of the other things that that we hear or and we see is that you will drive through certain areas of town and everything is pristine and beautiful. Then you drive through other areas of town where there are um, houses that are in poor condition and that really frustrates the individual next door who's trying to do a good job taking care of her or his property. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of times when, when the public, the average resident sees that, they will say, well, code enforcement's not doing their job or um, code enforcement um, reacts differently in some sections of the city versus other sections of the city. And they feel like the situation is inequitable sure. uh, when they see those sorts of differences you know, what is the response based upon your knowledge and, you know, the various communities in which you have been involved? You know, what do you say to the average resident who feels like there's possibly some disparities or inequities in how the codes have been applied? I would say call and complain. Most code enforcement is complaint-based or reactive in nature, meaning that they don't proactively go out and look for violations. And that's that could be a lot of reasons, Janice. Some of that is city policy, but a lot of it is they just don't have the resources to go, you know, scour an entire city looking for these issues. There may be, you know, three code officers in a city of 50, 60,000 people, and each one of them may have hundreds of cases on their desks. So the vast majority of cities and counties in our country are reactive. So I would say get a case going. Submit a complaint. In many uh, states, it's an anonymous. Now, some states like Florida just changed the law that prohibit anonymous complaints, except in cer- certain situations. But by and large, they can be anonymous or you can give your name. And more, more and more folks that I see are happy to do so. But file a complaint, contact the city code enforcement, make your voice known. And if you're not getting a response, then escalate that. But know that code enforcement processes all these complaints and they respond to them first through an inspection of the property. Okay. All right. Great. So just, just take advantage of the fact that you as a citizen have the right to complain and just use it. Absolutely. Make your voice heard. Absolutely. Okay. When you think in terms of misconceptions, I think that is one misconception that, you know, code enforcement is really aggressive in some areas and not so much in other areas. Said most of the time, codes and code enforcement just react to whatever is happening, whatever complaints they receive. Mm-hmm. Um, are there other misconceptions about the whole business of code enforcement that you've seen frequently? 
Yeah, I do. I mean, I do think one is we kind of touched on at the beginning of our discussion here today, which is the scope of what they do. Um, it really isn't just overgrown lawns, although those are a problem. If you're living next to it for a long time and you're tired of the rodents that, you know, nest in those areas, that's that is a real issue. And out here in a drought, that becomes a fire hazard. So, you know, it's not just those kind of issues. I think one misconception is this is just real low level stuff. And in the beginning of my career, I would have to convince judges and juries initially of why they should even care about this kind of thing. I think we're gaining traction in that, uh, correcting that misconception. I mean, let's be clear, we do deal with those issues in code enforcement because that's what the law provides. I think secondly, there's a misconception that code enforcement goes looking for problems or makes them up to pick on people. But the reality is, is that code enforcement officers don't make the law. We have a democratic process and that's our elected officials vote on these laws, which are ordinances at the local level. And there's public input involved. Here in California, there's two separate opportunities for that, as a matter of fact. So they're enforcing laws that elected officials put into place. They're not making these laws up and they're not looking to create problems. I think third is that code enforcement uh, doesn't know what they're doing or isn't responsive. That's certainly a possibility out there. There's thousands and thousands of code officers around the country, but by and large, these are good hearted people who are just trying to do good in their communities, often putting themselves in extreme danger to do so. In fact, down there in Georgia, a code officer was murdered not long ago. Um, these are real things. These are unsworn people out there. These are your neighbors taking a stand, trying to improve communities. I think those are the biggest ones. And maybe the last one I would add, Janice, is there are some who accuse code enforcement and attorneys serving code enforcement as in it for profit. They're not. There are tools like fines that can be issued to compel compliance, but code enforcement's goal is to get compliance and also to get compliance. And the third thing is to get compliance. <laughs> that's yeah, that's right. the goal is to right. get compliance. And of course, public agencies simply cannot pay to fix up every violator's property. So recovering those costs is important, but fines and other things aren't issued simply for punitive or punishment measures. They're just to get compliance. That's the goal. And that's why we're all in it. Yeah. You know, you touched upon judges. The judicial system is really key. Here in Georgia, if there's a code enforcement case, it goes to magistrate court. Uh, I know that court may have different names in different places. Um, but is there, if you could magically wave a magic wand and make one change about code enforcement, what would it be? And I'm going to give you my answer first while you're thinking <laughs> about yours. Um, there needs to be a, a closer relationship between the judges and code enforcement. I mean, obviously you want the judges to be impartial, right. but a lot of times the code division or department or whatever it is that you have uh, can only be effective to the extent that the judges are willing to hear them out um, on the various cases that they bring. You know, and I know the judge is up against it. You know, a, a property owner comes in and he or she is 85 years old and they say, hey, I don't have the money to fix up this particular mm -hmm. rental. I know all of that places the judge in a bad position. But can you kind of discuss that relationship between code enforcement and the judiciary? Yeah, you said it so well, Janice. We can only go so far without 
the judges. It's a separate branch. We have three branches of government. We're one, they're another. Um, and that's how it should be. They need to be impartial. All code of force and ask judges to do is compare our evidence to the law and follow the law. That's that's really it. And that's what the law is there for. So I think the relationship is one where one needs the other. Judges aren't going out uh, looking for problems. They're not witnesses, but they, you know, they're in the industry too. They're in the, they serve the government and the community, presumably to help the government and the community. And so does code. So it's a very close relationship. We see a lot of judges. We're asking them to make tough decisions, these circumstances. If I could wave my magic wand in this context and get one thing, it would be a better understanding. Sometimes I found in my early days of uh, criminal trials that it was easier for a jury to understand about a murder or a robbery or a burglary and therefore prove that case than it was to get someone to understand why an unpermitted house was a problem. It's a more arcane subject. And so I would use my magic wand to get a greater understanding of what the heck code enforcement is, what they do and why they're trying to do it. And frankly, why we should all care about it. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's one item, item that I know has been discussed in several communities. I'm not sure how many have implemented, and that is a rental registration, you know, requiring every landlord to register. Um, so that as a you know way for code enforcement to be more uh, proactive. Mm -hmm. uh, is that something that you've seen a lot of uh, organizations implement? And how well do you think it works in terms of heading off code enforcement issues? I have seen it. And I, I've seen it in a couple different ways. I've seen short-term rentals real big. That's like the Airbnb kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And that's important to track. In fact, we have a case out in California where someone was uh, running an illegally operating or unpermitted short-term rental. And you might say, so what? That's just, you know, big government trying to regulate nickel and dime people. Well, there was an underage kid party, a big blowout, a lot of underage drinking and two kids were shot and one was murdered. And it's not necessarily because they were short-term rental that that occurred. It's because that there was a complete lack of oversight. In fact, the owner was supposed to live on site if they had actually had a permit. And I guarantee you that wouldn't happen if the owner was living on site. So we see it in the short-term rental context. We see it in the multifamily, like apartment complex rentals. Uh, we see it in vacant property registration ordinances. All these are just geared to simply put properties that have a tendency to create bigger problems in communities than your typical single family house uh, on the radar of the city so they can keep an eye on it and try to prevent these kind of disasters from occurring. Right. And um, have you also, what are some of the other more successful strategies uh, that you've seen local governments implement to improve the enforcement of their code? I've seen, I've seen really good setups where they uh, have a process in place. You know, for certain kind of violations, it's this process, complaint, inspection, a notice, an opportunity to fix the violation where they list the violations, and then maybe an administrative fine or two, and then they move on. But I think a good process is one that is efficient and effective so that neighbors aren't calling for years on end, asking, where are we in this case and why haven't we moved along? I think that's a really effective process. Forum, um, I think a process where they are transparent and report out to the community on what they're doing and why they're doing it is really important as well. So I think good organization and good transparency and communication. I'd also add, Janice, that 
you know, historically cities are not good at uh, marketing and sharing the good information and the good things they do. And I think it's really important in this context for cities to get out there and say, this is, this is what we're doing. It's like your taxpayer dollars at work. We are out there. We are working. We are improving your communities. Here's the good stuff that we do. Gone are the days where cities should just say no comment. They need to be out there talking about what they do and be open to criticism and suggestions about how to improve it. Okay. Okay. That is all just really good information for us as we prepare to close out this conversation. We only got a couple more minutes. Is there anything else that you would love to share with our listeners? Again, most of our listeners are just residents of communities um, here in Augusta, throughout Georgia, and sometimes other places as well, who just want to know more about how government works. Is there anything else you think they need to know about code enforcement before we close out? I'd say code enforcement folks are there to help. They really are. I've never met one in my 17 years and my travels across the states and my thousands of cases that is in it for any other reason. So reach out to them. A lot of folks don't even know what code enforcement is or that they exist. And so part of the reason I reached out to you, Janice, was wanting to evangelize or spread the word, so to speak, on code enforcement, let folks know you don't have to live in these bad conditions. You don't have to live next to you know a neighbor property that's terrifying you. You've got nowhere else to go but your home. You don't have to you know be in danger or something like that. Look at your municipal codes, most of, most of which are available just by you know searching up online. Reach out to your code enforcement. They're there to help. Yeah, and and this notion of partnership with with code enforcement is a big takeaway that Huge. I think I heard from from you today. Where we, you know, a lot of code enforcement folks are actually our neighbors. So it really is a partnership uh, with the community and the code enforcement people. Okay. Uh, Matt Silver, thank you so much for joining the Local Matters family today. Whenever someone is a guest, we call them a member of the family. So I love it. Uh, thank you for, for helping educate our listeners about uh, some of the, the challenges and um, some of the ways that they can work toward improving quality of life in their communities as well. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me, Janice. I hope you learned something from attorney Matthew Silver coming to us all the way from California. Uh, I will say that sometimes the duties of code enforcement will differ depending upon the organization. Um, but generally speaking, code enforcement, like many other local government some, uh, services, is very similar, regardless of wherever you are. Uh, in terms of being in the Augusta area and many other cities across the country, 311 systems have become extraordinarily popular. It's the common way that you report problems. So if you see illegal dumping, if you see uh, abandoned vehicles, um, tall grass, dilapidated structures, houses that are unsafe to live in, uh, and you want to make a complaint about those things, the easiest thing for you to do is to call 311. Uh, when you call, please have as much information as you can. It's very helpful to have the exact address of the property. If the vehicle you see still has a tag on it, uh, it's great to give them the tag number uh, and a full description of the vehicle. Um, illegal dumping complaints, if you say, hey, it's tires or it's furniture or it's whatever, 
please just have a real good description uh, of that uh, so that you can report that. It makes it that much easier for 311 to sort this out and then report it to either the marshal's office or to code enforcement. Uh, for clarity, in Augusta, uh, the marshal's office handles illegal dumping and junk vehicles. Code enforcement handles the dilapidated and unsafe structures and tall grass and the sign ordinance, uh, things like that. So again, uh, local matters exist to help you have a better understanding of how all of this works and to improve your quality of life by uh, taking matters into your own hands. And one of those things includes reporting code enforcement violations that you see. Um, this week, we talked about the ugly stuff, you know, all, that thing, all the things that code enforcement deals with that sort of pollutes our community. Next week, we're going to turn the tables and we're going to talk about the beautiful stuff. Uh, I have invited Brenda Durant, who is executive director of the Augusta Arts Council, to come in and talk about all the gorgeous public art that we have around Augusta. Be blessed. I close with my favorite Bible verse from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This show is designed to contribute to each of those, giving you the power that comes with knowledge, demonstrating love for your local community, and offering you wisdom for decision-making so that you possess a sound mind when it comes to these topics. Please tune in next Wednesday at 1.30 p.m. here on WKZK, 1600 AM, 103.7 FM, and WKZK.net, because local matters.